If you're just joining us for the first time, um, we're studying God. What a, what a statement to make, as if we could ever do anything like fit God under a microscope or make him the object of a study like we would study anything else. And even as we do this together, we realize and we understand that we're just um, catching the, the trailing glimpses and trailing parts of his glory as we are trying to coalesce around these five descriptors that God has given um, of his self, himself at Exodus 34. That's our method that we're using as we attempt to study God. One way to study God is to read what other people have written about him. Scholars, philosophers, even skeptics. We can read the thoughts of man about God. Our method here is to try to understand what God has told us about himself. And we find those things right here in Exodus 34 as an answer to Moses' request, please show me your glory. And God descends and he begins to unfold before this man what the nature of his character is. And so here we are once again at Exodus 34. Our goal is not just knowledge. It's good to remind ourselves of that. Our, our goal is not just knowledge here. Our goal is to see more of God, that we might develop a greater love for God. Our goal is love. We've talked in previous weeks um, about the reality that God is merciful. It's the first thing he says about himself. Talked about how God is gracious last week, how God is slow to anger. And uh, today, as we've mentioned, we're talking about the faithful God. What does it mean that God is faithful? And what does it mean for us? It's our special subject today. How could we ever do that in 30 minutes? We're going to do our best. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. I'm going to begin in verse 5 of chapter 34, and I'm going to read on into verse 7 to catch everything God says about uh, his faithfulness. Okay, this is what we find. This is the word of God. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God, we believe you have spoken truthfully about yourself. Um, show us what this means and cause our hearts, the, the hearts of everyone listening, cause our hearts to rejoice in love over who you are as we call to mind the experiences we've had with you and how you've demonstrated over and over your faithfulness to us. So I pray you'd be good to your people. Give them true and good things for their hearts to feast on today. And we pray in Jesus' lovely name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. 
Two things are highlighted in our passage. Two things. We're actually going to take them in reverse order. Two things are highlighted for us in reverse order. First of all, our lack of faithfulness to God. Yeah, this passage is about how God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's really the whole point. That's one thing that's highlighted here. God abounds in this, but that's not the only thing that's highlighted here. The other thing that's highlighted here is our lack of faithfulness to him. Notice, not one, not two, but three descriptors of our lack of faithfulness to God. Notice them in your copy of the text right there in the middle of verse 7. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, we are not used to delineating our sin that way. We, when we talk about our sin, we just say, hey, I'm struggling with sin. And we just use one word to kind of capture that whole idea of my sin. One word suffices for us. But God uses three words here to describe the offenses of human beings. And one of the questions we might ask is, is there any real difference between these three words? Do they all mean basically the same thing? Is there any difference in what they mean? Is this just stylistic variation? Different ways of saying the same thing? Or is there real difference here? Well, let's look at the words. The first word is iniquity. If you have the NIV translation, New International, the word you have in front of you is wickedness. This translates a Hebrew word that basically speaks to our condition. Our condition before God. The condition of being wicked at heart. And our condition of being guilty. It speaks to who we are as we stand before God. We are wicked. We are guilty. On the other hand, the next word, transgression, or once again, if you have the NIV, rebellion. This word, transgression, translates a Hebrew word that speaks more to our offenses, like the offenses themselves. I did that bad thing. Or those evil things, those crimes. Particular things that we do that are offensive to God. Transgression. Okay, so do you get the, the difference between the two terms? Iniquity speaks more to who we are. Transgression speaks more to what we do. And we, we have those categories in our minds. We do understand that we have this sin nature that is part of who we are. That's true. And then it works itself out in specific transgressions. Right? Specific crimes against God. So both of those ideas are resident here in the text. Who we are and what we do. And then the last word that's translated sin is a little bit trickier because it's only used two times in the whole Old Testament. Here in Isaiah 5.18. That's all. It's not the usual Hebrew word for sin. About all we can say responsibly is it just means 
sin. And it's a catch-all word for sin. It ties the whole list up, okay? It completes the whole list. Who we are, what we do, all sin. So it speaks to our whole condition. It's a faithful picture of who we are. And I, I look at this list, iniquity, transgression, sin, and I go, yes, yes. Yes, I see all of those things in my life. All true. This is a really faithful picture of who Matt Brandt is. I am battling this sin nature. I am committing sinful offenses. This is an accurate portrayal of my condition and the condition of every person before God. So we have this great contrast in front of us. At Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, on the other hand, we abound in sin. And it's spelled out for us this way, this way, and this way. Now, I know that these ideas are not new to you. We talk about these things all the time. Thinking, yes, I know that I'm sinful. Just reminded of that 10 minutes ago. Let me tell you this, the amazing thing isn't, isn't so much that we are unfaithful to God. I know that, that that thought does not amaze you. It's not an amazing thing for us to think about how we are unfaithful to God. We, we see that all the time. We're used to that. We know that about ourselves, that we are unfaithful to God. The amazing thing is not so much that we are unfaithful to God. It's how quickly we become unfaithful to God. And how severely we become unfaithful to God. The amazing thing is how we wake up in the morning with all of these good intentions of, I'm going to keep a tight rein on myself today. I'm going to do good with my thoughts and good with my actions. And I'm going to be disciplined in my mind. I'm going to take every thought captive. And how 23 and a half faithful Hours can be followed by 30 minutes of complete failure, just like that. And how we turn against God on a dime so quickly. How could Jesus mean everything to us one moment and nothing to us the next? And, of course, the great example of this is Peter. You know, Jesus really was everything to Peter, legitimately and sincerely. We think about all those words and all of the resolve that Peter demonstrated, all those professions of how he would be faithful. You know, Peter had been faithful. You remember John 6, when all of those disciples were leaving Jesus and they were walking away because his words and his teaching were too hard. And Jesus is left with his little group and he looks at them and says, well, do you want to leave also? And it's Peter who speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Translation, I'm not leaving you. And then we come to the end of John and he is the one who is leaving. One minute, Jesus is everything to him. And then in an instant, at the fire, in the courtyard, around that little fire, Jesus becomes 
practically insignificant to him. And I think that's the amazing thing about us and our sinfulness, not so much that we are unfaithful to God, but how quickly we become unfaithful to God. Treating our Jesus, who we hold in the highest esteem, as practically nothing when we're tempted and when we give in. Now, this may sound like a pretty bleak picture to you all, and you may be thinking, hey, this doesn't sound like the normal Christian life. You know, you're right. It's not the normative Christian life. It's not God's intention for us to walk in such a way that we're marked by unfaithfulness. We're not saying that it's the normative Christian life. We're saying it's part of the Christian life. We're just acknowledging that we're not better than Peter. And we don't skate through the Christian life with a perfect record of faithfulness. And so we're just noticing today, who is God to us when we are unfaithful to him? Who is he to us? When we are unfaithful to him, is he severe? Does his patience have limits? Could we ever be cast on the junk pile? And could God ever just say, I'm done with you because you've messed up for the 25,000th time in the same way. And I've heard you repent before. And I know you didn't really mean it. And so now I'm really done with you. Is that ever going to happen? We're here to learn what God is like, so let's do that now. Let's turn the corner and let's consider the other thing that's highlighted here. In contrast to our unfaithfulness to God is God's enduring faithfulness to us. God's enduring faithfulness to us. We see the words in our text, Exodus 34, 6, that God... The God who is, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay? We see those words in front of us in the text. So let's do two things here. First of all, let's talk about the qualities themselves. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's talk about the qualities themselves. And then let's talk about the display of those qualities. How we actually see them in action. Okay? Those are the two things that we're going to do, and and then we're done. The qualities themselves. These qualities are often linked in the Old Testament. Steadfast love and faithfulness, they go together all the time. When you see one, you usually see the other. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Psalm 115, 1, they're paired together. 2 Samuel 15, 20, they're paired together, just to name two. They describe who God is to us. Okay, steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, sometimes translated loving kindness, sometimes translated loyal love. The key idea behind steadfast love is loyalty. It is a love that endures offenses. It's a loyal love. A love that endures offenses and remains loyal to the one upon whom the love is set. 
God's love for us is not dependent on our loveliness or our ability to deserve love. That's what human love is like. We love people who are lovely. We love people who are beautiful. We naturally fall in love with people who are easy to love. That's what happens naturally in our hearts. But as soon as that person becomes unattractive or difficult, then our love for them wanes or leaves completely. That's human love. That's one way that God is different from us. He can and does love with a loyal love. He loves the unlovely. We see steadfast love and we think loyalty. Now, the companion word, faithfulness. This is the Hebrew word emmet, as in the boy's name, emmet. The great cowboy's running back, Emmett Smith. Emmett, faithfulness. The key idea is constancy. If the key idea for steadfast love is loyalty, the key idea behind faithfulness is constancy. Steadfast love speaks to what God is like. Faithfulness speaks to the reality that he will always be like that. Steadfast love speaks to what he is like. And the companion word, faithfulness, speaks to the reality that he will always be like that. He will not change and be other than what he is. Okay? If you don't remember anything else this morning, remember this. This is the most important point. God is faithful to himself. The bedrock of our confidence in God, that he will continue to love us and forgive us, that he won't leave us, is not our ability to maintain his love and be faithful to him in word and thought and deed. No, that's not the bedrock of our confidence. The bedrock of our confidence is that God will be faithful to God. His faithfulness to us is rooted in his faithfulness to himself. To indeed be the God who is the unchanging one, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And since God is faithful to himself, we know he will be faithful to us. So the great contrast here and the great thing is that no human can be faithful to God. Only God can be faithful to God. And this is the wonderful thing on display in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who could say truthfully, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's God being faithful to God. And all of our hope 
And all of our confidence is tied up in the reality that Jesus has been faithful to God in thought and word and actions. That's called righteousness. And that perfect righteousness has been credited to all who set their hope on Jesus Christ. Isn't that the best news in the world? That my standing before God does not depend on how well I can be faithful to God. No, it depends on how well Jesus did at being faithful to God. And he did it perfectly. And the great news is that I can be credited with his righteousness instead of mine, in my place. That perfect obedience of his can be credited to me. That's called an alien righteousness. Don't you love that terminology? It's an alien righteousness. That's what Paul calls it. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of myself. It's foreign to me, but credited to me when I place my faith in Jesus Christ. The fidelity of Christ is gifted to me, and I'm saved and stand spotless before God because of the work of Jesus, not mine. And you might say, okay, be in Christ by faith. What does that mean? That sounds kind of nebulous to me. You're telling me that I need to be in Christ by faith. What does that look like? It just means you lay down your tools. You lay down your hammer and your saw and your screwdriver, and you stop working and simply trust in the work that's already been done for you by Jesus Christ. Know that his work has satisfied God and avails for you and covers every sin. And because Jesus has done that work on your behalf, he can extend a legitimate invitation to you. He can really say to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you resting in the work of Jesus? You who are here this morning and feel completely ashamed because of what you did again, you can rest in the work of Jesus on your behalf. And you who are feeling so dirty and like God could never forgive you for what you've done, you are invited to rest in the work of Jesus on your behalf. And everyone within the sound of my voice that is feeling insufficient and not up to the task and like they're behind everyone else and like they could never be good enough, they could never please this Father, you are invited to come and rest in Jesus Christ, the perfect one. The faithfulness of God, first of all, means that God is faithful to God. Jesus has done that. And the reality of all of his work and the blessing of all of his work overflows to us and means that God is now faithful to us when we are in Christ. That's amazing. Those are the qualities themselves, steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's notice one thing about how those qualities are displayed. Okay, last thing. The display of the qualities those are also mentioned in our text. One thing that we could talk about is the extent of the display. 
We could talk about the fact that God keeps loyal love for thousands. Do you see that word in your text? Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Could also be translated thousands of generations. One thing we might think when we look at that word is that this is a limitation on God's steadfast love. We might think, oh, it's only for a thousand people or a few thousand. It's very limiting. No, the effect, the meaning is just the opposite. It's not a limitation. It's meant to convey the idea of unlimited to the thousandth, thousandth, thousandth generation. Unlimited. Thousands is a word meant to convey it's never-ending. It's not a limitation at all. The extent of his loyal love and faithfulness is unlimited. We're going to let the main focus fall on this one word in verse 7 that we have not said anything about yet, and that's the word forgiving. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving all these things we talked about moments ago, iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the result of the display. The result of God's steadfast love and faithfulness is real forgiveness of sin. I talked with someone last week who said, um, they told me that they don't cry during movies. And I told them I can't identify with that at all. I cry at pretty much every movie. I said to them, you don't cry at movies? Not even Toy Story 3? Like, you must not have seen that one. Like, the end? You didn't cry? Really? Is that possible? Why am I talking about that? Well, I teared. I cried, okay? I didn't just tear up. I cried. I'll just say it. I cried when I watched Hamilton for the first time because the forgiveness scene is so beautiful. There's a great offense between husband and wife. And then there's this great moment of forgiveness. And the reason that it's so moving is, of course, because it's tied to something that's real and true. It's tied to the fact that we bear the image of God. And God is a God who really forgives sin. In this moment in the musical or or movie or whatever it is, does such a wonderful job of displaying both the difficulty of forgiving sin and the beauty of forgiving sin. And it just welled up in me because I looked at that and said, yes, even a a production that in no way had the goal of praising our God has nevertheless done such a wonderful job of picturing exactly who God is. A God who forgives all of these great offenses. And the fact that he had done that for me. And you may think, God, some of you here may really think this, that God could never forgive me because I have done this. And this thing is too evil to forgive. Or you might think, I know that God 
cannot forgive me because I have done this same thing over and over and over again. You may think, God could just never forgive me. And what I want you to know, my friend, is that the opposite is true. It is precisely because God is who he is that he will forgive you. It's because he's God that he will forgive you. Don't stand off far from him thinking he is not a God who will forgive me. It's because he's God and because he remains loyal to himself that he will remain faithful to you. Go to him. He will forgive you. I think sooner or later, every Christian wonders, is there a limit to God's forgiveness? Surely there must be a limit to the number of times God will forgive me. Or there must be some upper limit where something I could do becomes so bad that he could never forgive me. There must be something I could do that would exceed the bounds of what is forgivable. And the answer is no, there is not. And the confidence we have, the reason that we know that's true, is because an infinite price has been paid for sin in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if we say that there is a limit to God's forgiveness, we would have to say there is a limit to the value of the blood of the Son of God. And there is not. And there can never be. The blood that was shed is of infinite value. Blood of infinite value has purchased forgiveness of unlimited display. And because the father cannot overlook the shed blood of his son, which covers every believer, he cannot fail to forgive you. He will not overlook the blood that covers you. He will always forgive. Blood of infinite value has purchased forgiveness of unlimited display. Take that home with you. Plant it in your heart and never let go of it. He is and always will be the faithful God to you. The God of steadfast love who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what he has said about himself. Amen. Father, thank you. On behalf of all those gathered in this room, thank you that when we wake up tomorrow morning, you will be who you have always been. The God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us, never to leave. How we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.